reading from Exodus 34:29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And after six days, Jesus took him, Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now we come to a moment in Mark's Gospel. Now this is a moment, there's a context to all of this, uh, this transfiguration uh, uh, story. There's a moment we come to in Mark's Gospel where the disciples came near to despair after the prediction of Christ's death. And we just need to look back in one chapter, the previous chapter in Mark chapter 8, 31 to 33, it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and, they, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the mind or you didn't have in mind the concerns of God, but mere human concerns. And so it was after this very awkward confrontation where Peter the rock becomes Peter the shifting sands and all of his mates had to look on and watch Peter be humiliated. And they all felt the sting of Jesus' words. 
Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. Have, have you ever done that, your mum or your dad with your brothers and sisters, where, where they, 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 look at, they look, or even a teacher, where they look at your friends or your brothers and sisters, but your mum and dad's pointing at you? Yeah? You get that? That's what's happened here. He's gone. But then Jesus turned, looked at the disciples and went, rebuke Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so after this team building exercise goes totally belly up, Jesus brought them to a remote mountain where he was transfigured before them. And in that moment, the disciples basked in the unveiled glory, Jesus' unveiled glory. There's a good book that I'd like to recommend to you by R.C. Sproul, uh, or Sproul, called The Glory of Christ. In the book, Sproul writes that in classic theology, we note that the progression of Jesus' life in general moves mainly from humiliation to exhortation. It begins with the gospel narrative of his birth in the circumstances of poverty. The narrative then moves towards the rejection by his own people and the low watermark is the betrayal and the crucifixion on the cross. Now, the first movement towards exaltation comes with the circumstances of his burial and then the, reaches its peak with the resurrection and finally with the ascension. Now, I said all that to say this, and that is the general progress of humiliation to exaltation is not necessarily absolute. Throughout his life, Jesus had various, uh, or there were various uh, vignettes. There were little moments where glory burst forth, even during his humiliation. At the time of his birth, the circumstances of poverty were contrasted by the glorious manifestation of God to the shepherds in the, in the surrounding fields. There is presumably no point in the life of Jesus prior to the resurrection where his glory shines forth so magnificently as it does here in Mount Hermon at his transfiguration. One man said, those who have seen the glory can never be the same again. So in Mark's telling, in Mark's gospel, in Mark's telling of this transfiguration, the main point of the whole event is to emphasise Jesus' true identity and to instruct the disciples and us to listen to Jesus. Verse 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And so we see here a moment of God's glory revealed. So let's note the setting of the transfiguration. Mark's gospel tells us that after six days, Jesus took his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James and John, up to a high mountain apart from the crowd. It's significant that the timing of this event took place after six days. So we just saw what happened in the previous six days in Mark chapter 8, where we see Peter's, Caesar's, uh, Peter's uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi confession. In, in 29, it says, And Jesus asking them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, What did he say? You are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. And then, only a little way later, a little time later, a little moment later, Jesus explains to his disciples that he must suffer and die. And Peter was horrified at this suggestion. 
We read this already. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you imagine? Can you imagine your friend, your Lord and your Saviour, the person you look up to, the person you love the most, they turn to you and call you Satan. They call you a liar. They call you a deceiver, a pretender. Can you imagine that? This is the point. This is the pivot, the pivot point in Mark's gospel. Now, as a group, as a group of 12, they begin to pivot and turn from the north of Galilee, where they were doing all their ministry, all the miracles were happening, where the people loved Jesus, they pivot from there and they start to move to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the cross and the death awaits Jesus, where cross and death awaits Jesus. And so the disciples move in an attitude of menacing, grim foreboding. All they can think about are these terrible words that Jesus has spoken to them right after the Caesarea Philippi confession. Now their beloved friend, now their Lord was moving towards death. So the foreboding cloud of doom hovers over the disciples for a whole six days. As they are just on the edge of despair, Jesus takes Peter, James and John up to a high mountain apart from the people and the scripture tells us he was transfigured before them. Now, the Greek word is transmorpho and we get our English word metamorphos, or metamorpho, sorry, and we get our English word metamorphos. Now, how many learned about this in elementary school as kids, eh? Come on, all your hands should go up. We, we, we learned about the dramatic change that takes place from a caterpillar to it becomes a butterfly. We all did that. Did you all have the, the chrysalises in your classrooms? And yet, okay, I'm in the right place. So the caterpillar un undergoes a change or a form, doesn't it? So the Greek word meta means to transfer or sequence and, meta, uh, and morphos means fashion or form. So the Greek word for metamorphos is the English word transfiguration. Now in English, the prefix trans uh, in the word transfiguration means a cross and we get words like transcontinental. So where we go from one part of the land to the other. Now, if we go transatlantic, where are we going? Where? Europe. We go to Europe, don't we? Now, if we go trans-Pacific, where are we going? Where? Hawaii? Samoa? Fiji? New Zealand? Australia? I had to get that one in. So, what happens in this text is that Jesus moves in terms of what is visible to the eye of his disciples. There is a transformation, a moment from one perspective to another. For all his earthly life, the, the incarnate Logos, the second person of the Trinity, has his glory hidden and veiled in the cloak of Jesus' humanity. But now, but now, suddenly, before the eyes of the disciples, the full deity of Christ bursts forth. 
So let's notice the details that Mark gives us. In verse 3 it says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. When the Gospels describe the appearance of Jesus, they talk about the change of his face and the change of his clothes. When we look at Matthew and Luke's gospel reports of the event in the life of Jesus, they tell us that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. In Luke's event, it says that the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So the big question is this morning, where else in scripture do we read of someone's face shining with a blinding intensity. Amen. When, when we, we look back at the Old Testament and we read it today, we see the life of Moses. And we remember when Moses was on the mountain of God, he begged God for the ultimate blessed vision. Moses said to God in Exodus 33, 18, 23, please show me your glory. And God said, God denied it, first of all, and then he said, Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face you shall not see. So the Lord passed by, and when Moses got a momentary glimpse of the backward glance of the glory of God, that experience was so intense, so intense that the glory of God was so radiant and so brilliant that Moses' face began to shine like the sun. And in, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, it says, And as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Moses' face shone with such intensity, it was because he had been in the presence of God. Moses' face was now reflecting the radiance of God. That is to say, the light in the face of Moses was a reflected light. Moses' face was not the source of the light, but rather the light of God was rebounding from his face. The light of the Creator was reflecting off the creature. That's not what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. The intense brightness like the sun that transforms Jesus so that even his garments became whiter than snow, whiter than any bleach could possibly make them, indi uh, indicates not a reflection this morning, but the source of light is coming from within Christ himself. It's not a refracted light. It's not a reflected glory. It's an internal, internal inherent glory this morning. That's how, that's, that's now bursting forth before their very, very eyes. The gospel writers refer to this often when they say, for example, and he and we beheld his glory as the only begotten Son of God. The author of Hebrew, Hebrews describes Christ being the brightness of God's glory and the very image of his substance. Jesus does not just reflect the brightness 
of the glory of God. He is the brightness of the glory of God. Throughout scripture, we see this manifestation of this Shekinah glory of God. That brilliant flaming cloud that attended the presence of God as the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. We saw that in the book of Exodus. That bright light that blinded Saul on the road to Damascus, out of which light Jesus spoke to Saul and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The word glory means weightiness or heaviness, and it is assigned eternally to the being of God himself. Out of the depths of Christ's divinity or out of the depths of Christ's divine nature now comes this flood of light which is perfectly white. Here's a philosophical question for you. What colour is a lemon? Is a lemon really yellow? What colour is a lemon when the lights are out? If you're in a room where there's no light whatsoever, what colour is the lemon now? Do you see any yellow? You don't see it because the lights are out. Philosophers argue about this, okay? We, we, we don't need to argue about it this morning. <laughs> Philosophers argue about this and they say that colour is not primary, it is secondary. It is not something that exists in substance but something that is added to substance by the presence of light. Where does colour come from? It comes from the light, from the pure light of the sun, where all the hues of the rainbow are found. If you add all those colours together in the purity of light, you get absolute whiteness. If you want to catch a glimpse into biblical, this biblical significance of whiteness as divine light, then you can do this one thing to help yourself this morning. I suggest that you get the 1851 novel by American writer Herman Neville, Moby Dick. I don't think anyone's ever talked about Moby Dick in church, I don't know. <laughs> Moby Dick. You must all have it on your bookshelf somewhere. You probably read it at school. We all did. This book within it, one of the most profound chapters ever written by human pen without divine inspiration, the chapter entitled The Whiteness of the Whale. I don't have time this morning to get into all this right now, but we don't want to get into all the weeds and the significance of all this, but get the book, read it. I want you to catch a glimpse into the significance of whiteness in theology the biblical concepts. I urge you to go home and read the chapter, The Whiteness of the Whale. Jesus manifests his deity in the purity of whiteness that contains no spot, no wrinkle, and no blemish. It is the overwhelming manifestation of his deity, the Shekinah presence of God Almighty manifested in the person of Christ. Then we read that Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? The disciples were watching this display of light, this Shekinah breakthrough of God's glory and suddenly there appears before them Elijah and Moses. 
They were watching Jesus in conversation as he, as he huddled together with Moses and Elijah. What were they talking about? Well, Luke's gospel tells us what they were talking about. They were talking about what is waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't have to say to Elijah, get behind me, Satan. Jesus didn't have to say to Moses, get behind me, Satan, because both Elijah, who represents the prophets, and Moses, who represents the law, clearly understood the calling of the Messiah. They knew Jesus had to die, and they knew why Jesus had to die. They come now to the second person of the Trinity with their comfort and their encouragement. These holy men remind Jesus of his destiny that they had predicted centuries before. Elijah, who had been carried up into heaven in a chariot, now returns to Palestine, setting foot in the Holy Land. Moses, who was denied entrance into the Promised Land, he waited for centuries centuries and now he comes not as a horizontal venture where he now crosses the border but he comes now in a vertical venture he comes from heaven and he finally places his feet down in the land of palestine in the promised land and he speaks to the savior of humanity that's what happened that's what happened and whatever what else happens Peter speaks. I have to be honest with you all, one of my favourite New Testament characters is Peter. He makes me feel like there's hope for me. Amen? He makes me feel like there's hope, even for me. As we discussed earlier, Peter had the proclivity or the burning readiness to open his mouth and insert his foot. It's kind of amazing that he hasn't been incinerated yet, that he's not some grease spot on the ground or some crispy critter. In just the last chapter, he, he pulls Jesus off to the side to straighten him out and rebuke him. Moments before, he had declared Jesus to be God in the flesh, just moments before. Now he's Peter, just six days later, high on a mountaintop with Jesus, with Moses and Elijah, and he's running his mouth off again. Peter didn't know what to say. Mark tells us in verse 6, for they were afraid. But instead of responding the way, Elijah, the way uh, Isaiah did, like remember Isaiah in, in, in Isaiah 6, 5, he says, woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Isaiah said when he was fronted with, confronted with the Shekinah glory of God. He but what is, Peter, what is Peter's response? Rabbi, it's fantastic. It's good for us to be here. I love this mountaintop experience. I am not even thinking about Jerusalem. Let's camp out here. Let's build a tabernacle. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I don't need one for me. I'm happy just to lay my head on a rock and just bask in the glory forever. It would be good for us to stay. Can I make a suggestion to you this morning? 
if at some point in time God suddenly appears to you and you are naturally terrified, either shut up <laughs> or proclaim woes on yourself or lift high the name of God. Beyond that, it would be good and best to say nothing. Learn this lesson from Peter this morning. For some reason, Peter has interjected himself into the situation now. So let's take a moment and look more closely at the reality of what Peter is doing here. Firstly, Peter wants to revel in this mountaintop experience as opposed to being obedient to the perfect plan of God. I can relate to that. I, I, I have experienced many mountaintop experiences and I never wanted them to end. But God has a job for us to do and that job doesn't get done on a mountaintop. Peter appears to be thinking, if we can just stay up here, perhaps he doesn't have to die. Perhaps there will be no sacrifice. There is one thing, or there is one other thing at play here, and this goes back to Jesus' question to the disciples, Mark 8, 27, when he says, who do people say I am? Do you remember the answer to that question? Yeah. Interestingly, what, what did he say? What was the answer to that question? That's right. So interestingly, two of the answers were Moses and Elijah, weren't they? Two of the three answers were Moses and Elijah to that question. And so when the people put Moses and Elijah and the prophets on the same playing field with Jesus, this was a huge insult to Jesus. This was like comparing the Cleveland Browns to the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're not the same, are they? So what was Peter doing here? Peter was living in the I world. The world where it's all about me. It's all about how I feel. It's all about my preferences. It's the I world. The world where everything supports me. The world where my individual preferences are realised. The world where my autonomy and my freedom is asserted over divine revelation. Think about it. What does, what does Jesus say to Peter and the other disciples in the previous chapter? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, the I world. And it plays out again in chapter 9, right at the miracle of the transfiguration. And so God interrupts Peter's eye world with a cloud. God says, you go ahead, Peter, and do your whole introspective thing. It's all about me now, you know. It, do, do your whole all about me introspective thing. But this, what I'm doing here, this is what I want to do. God is saying, Peter, my will won't be accomplished on this mountaintop. It is my will that Jesus suffer and die. And don't ever put anyone else on an equal footing with me or my son. God does this with a cloud that completely encompasses them all. And by speaking from heaven, he says, 
using bits of Mark, using bits of Matthew, using bits of Luke's gospel. He says, this is my beloved son. He is my chosen one and I am well pleased with him. Listen to what he says. Because Peter is living his life out in his eye world. That is how he feels, his preferences, his perceived personal freedoms. He's actually thwarting the plan of God. His desire to have this endless mountaintop experience, which is actually at, actually at odds with the will of God, he's not listening. Peter doesn't have ears to hear or the eyes to see. So what are the applications for us this morning? As much as we all love the mountaintop experiences, because it's easy to cling to Jesus on the mountaintop, isn't it? Where, where, where there's a visible display of God's glory. It's easy to hold on to Jesus at a meaningful Christian conference. It's easy to hold on to Jesus at, at, a, at a Christian con, con, uh, concert. It's easy to hold on to Jesus at special times of worship. But as followers of Jesus, we need to hold on to Jesus in the valleys. We need to hold on to Jesus in the valleys too, or we will never make it. We will never make it. Like I just said, I'm a big fan, a big, big fan of mountaintop experiences. But there is a carnal risk in those experiences. There is a carnal trap because of our fallen nature, because it's all about me, it's all about my autonomy. The big danger of the, any mountaintop experience is that we can become complacent and self-dependent. Now, as the guitar plays softly and as we close... This morning, Jesus is looking for people who will cling to him all the time, even when the glow has gone. We need to hold on to Jesus in the valleys. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't focus on the circumstances of the trials. Don't trust in your own abilities. Hold on to Jesus with everything you've got this morning, beloved. Life in the valleys requires prayer. Life in the valleys requires simple faith in Jesus. Not some unbelieving sense of trust in your own ability or in your own feelings. And as we see with Peter, human limitations like doubt and strong emotions will try to derail God's plan in your life. Therefore, life in the valleys requires a God-given perspective. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? There's that word, metamorphosis. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you will, may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's, a, that's life in the valley this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. One percent at a time, two percent at a time. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. This is where the rubber meets the road, beloved. The only reason we don't have a godlike glow about us is because we choose to fail his glory. We choose to veil his glory by not being renewed in our minds. 
by not spending time in the Word daily, by not spending time in prayer daily, by not allowing all those things to transform us as we surrender to Him and to His will. We are to be a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And unlike Peter, James and John who do not have a they had a command of silence put upon them by the Lord, we must trust God completely and allow Him to mould us into what He wants us to be. Because we don't have that command of silence anymore. Even when we go through the peaks and even when we go through the valleys of this life. And so may His glory be veiled in us as we are renewed daily by the transforming power of His Word. And may we boldly proclaim His good news wherever He leads us. Now, if you're here this morning, as Christians are praying for the redemptive presence of the Lord, if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I, I really enjoy what you say and this sounds great, but, but what about me? I'm not a, I, I haven't received Jesus into my heart. I haven't received Jesus into my life, but I like what you're saying. Well, my friend, that can happen to you right now. Just takes a simple prayer, a simple prayer to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And if that's you this morning, you want to pray that prayer. You say, yes, pastor, that's me. Please pray with me. I want to accept Jesus into my life. I want to become born again. And if that's you this morning, you're in this room. Quickly, just slip your hand up in the air and say, that's me, Pastor. I, would, I, I want you to pray for me this morning. Quickly, if that's you, just put your hand right up in the air and say, that's me. That's me this morning. Please pray for me before you close the service. Please pray for me. Please pray for me. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's repeat this prayer all together and encourage those who would want to pray. Dear Father in heaven, I admit that I need you. Please forgive my unbelief and the things I have done wrong. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he paid for my sins with his blood on the cross. I call on his name to save me. I now receive his life. I believe Jesus is, the li is living in me. That I am forgiven. And now I am a child of God. Because of this free gift of eternal life, I will go to be with Jesus when I die. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I would love, I would love to talk to you after the service. We'd love to help you. You can keep it. If you can't catch hold of me, catch hold of Father Manny. Oh, Father Manny's teaching <laughs> the uh, young people, but Amelia will help you. And Deacon, Deacon Elizabeth, wave your hand, Elizabeth, so they can see she will help you as well. Please pray with me. God of glory and light, forgive us when we are complacent and comfortable with keeping the riches 
of your love to ourselves. Keep calling us down from the mountaintop of privilege. Keep expecting more from us as your disciples. Keep reminding us to listen to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.